Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Today's story comes from Seth Adams, the Land Conservation Director for Save Mount Diablo. 33 years ago, Seth joined Save Mount Diablo as their first staff member, and as a resident of the East Bay, he uses a powerful combination of passion, purpose, and persistence to manage change in a variety of focus areas. Seth has earned numerous awards and accolades for his work in advocacy, government relations, procurement, and acquisitions, and educational and media programs, all rooted in changing the hearts and minds to benefit the climate and the earth. Among Seth's accomplishments are participation in the preservation of tens of thousands of acres of land, as well as the creation of urban limit lines, all while supporting the raising of over a billion dollars in conservation funding. Seth is an avid hiker and an amateur historian. Enjoy the listening and the wisdom shared. jump right in um well first of all how's your day been <laughs> my days are completely varied and uh, they change every day I'm, my life is a search for balance i've been lately getting up earlier and more waking up before my alarm and getting more stuff done in the morning in part because i'm doing all this outdoor stuff in the morning it's getting warm and in the last few days of a two-week bio blitz recording species in a 60-mile, 70-mile-long part of or the 60-mile-long SCU Diablo Range fires from last August and paying attention to the regeneration of the fires over the next three or four years. And we discovered a very rare plant, and that's exciting. It's only found after fires, and so we found it on Mount Diablo in 2013, and that was the first time it had been seen there. And 40 years. And so it's expected it'll be there the next time there's a fire. But where we found it um, this time has never been recorded before. So brand new location for a very rare plant. Uh, it's the holy grail for amateur botanists who are fire followers. So that's exciting. And I'm mapping out. I, I was within, I, I was out in the same location where it's at before I heard about it last weekend and probably within a few hundred feet of the location. It's a rugged, formerly chaparral-covered place with very steep drop-offs, et cetera, and so I didn't see it, but some of my other staff did. <laughs> so, that, so that's exciting. But I was telling somebody, uh, I, was, I do walking meetings a lot with uh, elected officials and city managers and people like that, and I had one this morning, and. I was telling him that 
my mode from the time I was first hired by Save Mount Diablo 33 years ago to the present is I'm always working on 100 projects at once, and I don't have any. Although I'm very strategic, my main strategy is just do the next thing, then do the next thing, then do the next thing. And of course, figuring out what those next things are is part of the strategy, and having a long-term vision is part of the strategy. But I'm working on 100 different things, and I'm doing the next thing on each of them. And, and when you do that, inevitably, you accomplish a lot. Um, even when I started 33 years ago, I was working on 100 different things uh, simultaneously. We had, uh, it, I was the first staff person in a little land trust that had been all volunteer for 17 years. And the board members were getting older, and they thought they needed some help. They didn't agree on what kind of help they needed. And they hired somebody with these different ideas. And so I got to do all kinds of things as we were creating the structure of a professional organization. And so from fundraising to land acquisition to fighting development projects to um, communications and media and working with elected officials, all that stuff. And over the years, as we've hired more staff, I've given away pieces of my job. And when we first had a person in just for fundraising and just for land, we started joking about departments, and now we actually have departments. <laughs> I've always been working on lots of different projects and throwing lots of balls in the air, and we're, we're, we're purveyors of a constant stream of good news to our donors and supporters. And I was working on GIS mapping of where this, this rare plant is as I was getting news from our uh, attorneys about a development project that we're defending an initiative on that we got a pretty favorable ruling, which is not what we expected a few months ago and, and about as favorable as we could expect. At, at the same time, we have another lawsuit we've just filed on another development project. If you get caught up in the intensity of those things or bogged down in it, you can, any one of them can stress you out. Uh, but uh, if you keep a positive frame of mind that our engagement will make things better, even when you lose a battle or have a piece of bad news, you're still getting a constant stream of positive feedback and victories and all kinds of stuff. I have an exciting, fun, interesting job that lots of people think is important. And I imagine a lot of people probably don't even realize that they get to look at your work product, and I put it that in quotes, uh, sort of every day. So um, for those that don't know where Mount Diablo is, can you can you zoom out a little bit and explain to folks kind of where that is in the world and how they might actually know it, driving in that area, flying into that area? They've probably seen it, but they don't real, realize it. So can you explain to folks where Mount Diablo is and some of the um, things that they might look for when they see it? According to Northern and Central California Indians, it's where the world was created. But if you're flying into the front into San Francisco or Oakland from the east, you pass it. It's a big double peak in the East Bay all by itself, with other ridges stretching off in, in various directions. But it's very prominent. It looks like a double pyramid. And Native Americans thought it was important. It was important for uh, surveying, for mining, for manufacturing, for construction. It was one of the first seven state parks in, in California after being a tourist destination. There's a, an incredible view at the top and a 
Summit Museum, and so it's attracted a lot of people for a long time. And in this area, it's people's definition of home. When they see Mount Salvo, they know that they're home. There are other big peaks in the Bay Area, but they're mostly partially hidden among ridges and things like that. And Mount Diablo looks like a big volcano, even though it's not. And when I was hired, the organization was focused um, just on the lands around the main peaks and on the main peaks. And I very quickly started pushing them to work to preserve a much bigger area to focus on uh, wildlife quarters and connectivity. And we're now working our way well, we're still focused on the main peaks and preserving the last 25% north of Highway 580 there. We're also focusing on the entire 150-mile Diablo Range, stretching south across 12 counties. So it's a prominent place. It's got incredible biodiversity. It's in the Bay Area. So there's a lot of support from people, and there's a lot of money to protect it. But Contra Costa County, where we started, is also was uh, when Tabe Mount Diablo was formed, was the most pro-growth county in the Bay Area. And the, the conflicts between intense development pressure, endangered species habitat, all those kinds of things, has been intense for the entire history of 50-year history of the organization. And I came in and helped shift that balance back towards nature. Yeah. I think it's interesting the way we started talking, you were talking about sort of the, the bio blitz, I think is what you called it, and going out and looking at the areas after the fires of last year. Um, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because fire is a, is a, is a lot of um, destruction, but it's also creation. You found like a new, a new plant species or one that's pretty rare. Um, I'm curious from the standpoint of what's, what happened the past year and past years of those that are in those, that part of the world, having gone through the fires, what, how would you describe the relationship with those that live in that part of California, as well as sort of the, the natural element, right? The fires, the, the biodiversity, is it something that on the news, a lot of times we, it's reported that it's in conflict because, you know, too much growth and then that leads to, um, but how would you describe that? You've been, you've been obviously surveying it and assessing it and interacting with it for 30 years. Yeah, if you're interested in resources or if you're a Native American, that after fire comes regeneration and that a lot of the landscapes of California are adapted to fire and they need fire to regenerate. And so you go through one big fire and you see the incredible wildflowers and all the wildlife that comes back afterwards and all these places that had been completely inaccessible and thick chaparral and suddenly they're laid open and, and uh, you can access them. And you become a fire follower. You look forward to the next fires. If you're a homeowner, you get concerned about fires and they're a pretty stark object lesson about good or bad planning. That if you don't have many houses as was the case in the Diablo Range fires, the third largest fire in California history. Very few structures were burnt and no one lost their lives. A fire of almost exactly the same size, the fourth largest fire in California history, was happening just on the other side of the Sacramento River, stretching to the north, and several thousand houses were lost because those jurisdictions had allowed development into the interface of critical fire areas 
and in the time of climate change where that's intensifying, where there will be more fires, larger fires, et cetera, those planning decisions have a lot more importance. And so having organizations like ours which help push back on bad development proposals is a good thing. And there's no question that things are getting more intense. Last year was the biggest set of fires in California history, over 4 million acres. And some of that's because areas hadn't been burned regu more regularly. And so some of it's in new areas that had never burned before or rarely burned before. And that's going to continue. So the fire season is a month or two longer than it used to be. Nighttime temperatures are rising faster than daytime temperatures, so things don't cool down and more moisture is lost. And the real question relative to climate change is the San Francisco Bay Area end up looking like San Diego. And one of the things that will affect that plant community redistribution will be the extreme events like fire and flood and heat waves and things like that. But California is a young a young state in every way geologically it's incredibly diverse in terms of its resources its, its topography its biodiversity and i'm not saying it's a good thing that climate change is happening as fast as it's happening but extreme changes in in biodiversity have happened regularly over thousands and millions of years and plant communities have shifted north and south and east and west, and that's being accelerated right now. And so what we do in terms of educating people about fire and its positive aspects and how to use it as a management tool rather than just be afraid of it is one part of the equation. People building in the right places and protecting their properties is another part of it. California is so big and diverse that you can say just about anything about it, and that's probably true. But it's a proving ground for all kinds of things, especially environmental and conservation issues. It's ground zero on all kinds of things, whether it's effects of climate-induced migration or changes in climate or effects on the water supply, politics. It's a young, diverse, exciting place. I'm curious what, um, you know, obviously the past year, and every time there's one of these significant events, I think it it increases people's um, sort of conscious awareness of things like, um, you know, uh, climate change. Um, what is COVID and the pandemic and people staying home, um, not moving around as much possibly, or maybe doing more uh, interaction with nature? How has that shifted or do you think it hasn't shifted and it might shift going forward? I just watched uh, one of the latest David Attenborough documentaries. I think it was called The Year uh, The Year the World Changed. And, and he looked at some of the, the impact that nature had uh, on sort of the edges and cities. And I'm just curious from your standpoint, the work you've done for three plus decades, how has this year shaped what you're doing or what people are asking and inquiring about when it comes to climate change? changed in a lot of ways, but first I wanted to say a little bit more just about climate change because I think in the beginning there were lots of people who discounted it and there were lots of people who thought there will be winners and losers and the losers will typically be the poor people and in the southern countries and, and things like that. And I in my privileged position am probably in, a, in, a, in pretty good shape. And the reality is that 
you add a lot of energy to the atmosphere and the ocean, and you're going to supercharge things. And instead of facing one big climate event every four or five years, some huge hurricane in the southeast or floods in the Midwest or fires in California, we're now getting multiple events in the same year and sometimes in the, all in the same location. <laughs> Tornadoes in places where they weren't before. And there is no one who's not going to be affected. And the fire, the fire situation it gets a lot of news in California, just like an earthquake does. But I think the, I think the smoke was actually harder to deal with for a while. And you were seeing that in the Pacific Northwest too. And a lot of California is grassland, a lot of it's chaparral, which has evolved to burn. It's some of the Pacific Northwest fires that aren't evolved, excuse me, forests that aren't evolved with fire and that aren't meant to burn on a regular basis that are really going to, to see some intensity. But uh, pretty quickly, I think people are realizing it's because they're seeing it. Every, everybody in the country is experiencing climate change. They may not know it yet, but those bigger heat waves, those bigger cold spells, those tornadoes in new places, all those things are, all those things are happening and um, everybody's going to be affected. And climate-induced migration, all the border issues and, and people fleeing other countries because it's just untenable there. And how do we deal with them? All of that's going to get more intense and it's going to stress everything. So for me, COVID was this grand experiment and shared sacrifice. And what we all, I think, pretty quickly noticed, because California shut down early, I think it was March 16th or 17th, and people took it pretty seriously in the beginning. We were very rarely driving. It was pretty much to go to the grocery store. And immediately, everything quieted down. The air quality immediately got better. Everybody was hearing birds in their neighborhoods as the dominant sound instead of the streets two blocks away. And my first couple of months were about, wow, this is this is a great exercise in shared um, sacrifice. And will we look back on this like World War II or something like that as something in which the some way in which the nation pulled together? Of course, things were complicated by the Trump administration and mixed information about how to handle everything and so different places had different experiences but the other part that i thought about it was the bay area is famous for congestion and traffic and i thought to myself we're never going to go back to a five day a week business model in my office or in lots of the places that i know people work and that's partly because People working in the software industry can work from home. But uh, I thought to myself, this is practice for dealing with climate change and the shared sacrifice that we're going to have to make to deal with that. And I know how to solve traffic in California, and uh, which is pick your days. You get three or four days a week to drive and everybody else gets three or four days to drive 
And if you don't drive on those other days, suddenly the packed freeways are no longer packed. Uh, but of course, everything is more complicated than that. That was the case for months and months. I remember the times that I, I noted to myself, wow, this is the first time I've had I've had congestion on this freeway in the last nine months. Uh, and it didn't happen at Christmas the way it happens spectacularly and, and those kinds of things. There are going to be new models for the way business works and how people work. And there are a lot of us who the last year has been tragic and I have relatives who passed away from COVID. I know people who were affected early and long. I'm not one of those people who doesn't know anybody that was affected. Some people were three months ago or six months ago. But some of us can actually say it was a pretty good year for us. The, a lot of the big financial effects didn't take place where California has a surplus and, and is getting stimulus funding and all sorts of things like that. So a lot of the financial disaster that could have happened isn't happening. And that's true in a lot of places in privileged countries. But uh, it was a pretty good year for reorienting priorities. And one of the things we found here, which we have a cornucopia, an embarrassment of riches of parks and open spaces in the Bay Area, hundreds and hundreds of them, some of them very large, tens of thousands of acres in size. We're an urban area. We're, the, we're, we're As far as I know, we're probably the most integrated metropolitan area with urban and open space. And and one of my goals here in the East Bay is that no no one lives more than five minutes from an open space. Whether it's five minutes drive or five minutes walk, the idea is that um, you walk out of your neighborhood into a into a park. And I was lucky enough to buy a house that meets that criteria. We have some places that are that were protected a longer time ago in Marin County along the coastline, for example that have been busy for decades. And some of that was happening in places in the East Bay and in specific places, but all the regional parks, 30, 40, 50, 60% increases in visitation. Ours, our, our open spaces and parks have been open pretty much from the day one on the sheltering with various kinds of restrictions. And the difference in our quality of life relative to having those recreational spaces when so many other kinds of entertainment venues were closed. It, it was good. It wasn't bad. <laughs> it was good. I think we all put on COVID weight. Many of us, maybe more than that for me, but, uh, but I also think that I walked a lot more in the last year. I, our dogs got walked a lot more. We met our neighbors at an accelerated pace in the new neighborhood. And uh, I think there are, we're going to have a, a lot of discussions about what did we learn and what changed that we want to keep. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. One of the questions I had for you is kind of as you look over your career and your, you know, the history of being in this in this work, 
one of the questions was like, what's, what's been your proudest accomplishment, um, which I'd love to ask, but I want to pick up on one of the things you said, which is a goal you've always had is to have people live within, you know, uh, a short span or a short distance to a park or an open space. That's a pretty big goal. Um, as you think about the experience of, um, you know, homeownership and land and all of that interaction. So that seems like a pretty audacious goal. Um, and it seems like you're meeting it in that part of the world that you're in. What would you say has been one of your proudest accomplishments in the, in the, in the 30 plus years of doing this work? I have a whole string of them and I have a bio which lists a bunch of them. Um, and nothing I've done, it was done alone. Partners, teammates, agencies that we work with, but in in the span of my career, we've tripled the amount of public land in the East Bay at the simplest. We started at 11 or 12%, and we're over 35% now, um, and that process is continuing. And we used to be in last place after San Francisco in the Bay, Nine County Bay Area, and now we're in the middle of the pack. Um, that's been heartening, and I've been directly involved in tens of thousands of acres of preservation. And as part of that, we've helped develop, I can easily say, hundreds of millions of dollars to help finance that. But numbers are staggering at this point. I can easily say that I've been involved in over a billion dollars um, in acquisition funding in some way or, or park bond funding in some way. And that's what's helped the generous residents of the Bay Area, and especially here in the East Bay, have uh, funded a lot of what we do. The development stuff is, the development pressure is intense and the land values are incredible. And say Mount Diablo wouldn't have accomplished nearly as much as it has if we weren't also being involved in advocacy in an incredible way and responding to every development proposal threatening open space in our area. And we win a lot. We've gotten very good at winning and helping push development towards the cities and away from the slopes and ridges. And making all the kinds of decisions that you have to about, okay, here's a place where we'll support development versus here's a place where we'll fight tooth and nail to keep it from happening. And we protect in more land through the land use planning process than through direct acquisition. That's been a big part of it. And so one of my big, our big accomplishments that I'm proud of is creating urban limit lines around practically every city in the in the East Bay, some of the first urban limit lines in California, and giving them teeth, making them voter approved so they require voter approval to change them. I've done lots of things that are, you know, I've helped create whole new parks. Uh, when we started, we had one park on Mount Diablo and a couple off in the distance, and now we have 50 parks and preserves on and around Mount Diablo, and we're stretching south to connect with other parks. The whole idea of State Mount Diablo's expansive area of interest, working not just around the peaks, but increasingly south into the rest of the Diablo range, that's something I'm very proud of. And you can take it from those big regional, um, those big regional macro kinds of accomplishments down to really simple ones, too. Reintroducing Peregrine Falcons to Mount Diablo for the first time having it succeed and they're there every year now, which is a project I did in the late 1980s and, and for four years. And 
and it worked, creating a 30-mile regional trail across six parks. Those are some of the things I'm protecting 15 miles of, of the 33-mile second longest least disturbed creek in the county. <laughs> a lot of it's just piece-by-piece piece stuff and big landscape-level planning efforts that end up having a, a huge effect that will be that will be treasured and valued by increasing numbers of people for, for hundreds of years. And I, I can drive around the East Bay and it's pretty rare that I go anywhere that I can't point to something that, that I was involved in protecting or saving. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting as you talk about the advocates. Um, you know, it seems like there's an army of advocates that really uh, make this work come to life. And, I, and I'd also love to to hit on the point that you made. You know, we chatted before and you you reminded me that nature heals. And I know one of the things you do and you've done is you've taken large groups of people out on nature walks and hikes and you point out the things and you probably point out the falcons. And I imagine that's a very emotional experience. Um, is that part of what the advocacy is for you, is really taking people to it, walking them through it, being the educator, the advocate, the ambassador? Uh, is that part of what it is? Sure. I'm at the stage in my career where I'm the elder statesman who has a lot of institutional memory and a lot of connections. But what's common in land conservation organizations is that land staff are important because they connect people to the projects and the land. They bring the passion and the information and those kinds of things. And I'm, I'm fairly well known in the area for my work on Mount Diablo. And I get a, a special attention because of that. And I, you do anything for 30 or 40 years and you'll, you'll become some level of an expert on it. And so I have a great sense of place about the East Bay and the advocacy kind of splits in different categories though and there's advocacy of connecting people to the land and having them fall in love with it and there's advocacy about taking the public or decision makers out like I'm doing on Monday or did this morning uh, taking decision makers out and showing them the thing that you're working on whether it's something you're trying to protect or something you're trying to stop we don't voice an opinion about anything until we've seen it on the ground and uh, connecting people to the land is a, a big part of what we do that's another big outgrowth of um, the, the pandemic year which is we worked really hard <laughs> hit all of our fundraising marks and a lot of the reason is because our communications expanded in kind of incredible ways and we were doing a lot of communication before, but we took it in whole new directions. And and we, our voice gets out there. It used to happen a lot with earned media too, with newspapers and things like that. And that's not as as common as it used to be. But then another project that we did, which really engaged people, Mount Diablo has a beacon on the top that. Uh, was put up in, originally in 1928 to guide planes up and down the coast before there was radar. Um, so, there, so there could be flying at night and 
and uh, it could help commerce. Um, and it became known as the Eye of Diablo. Um, it, was, it was turned off during World War II, and then it was relit, I think, in 1964 to honor Pearl Harbor survivors. And as they needed help at one point, and so we jumped in to help them, it doesn't hurt that our organization was created on Pearl Harbor Day. In, in 1971, and uh, when the beacon got, you know, dilapidated, we put together a whole project to historically restore it. But it's lit up one time a year on Pearl Harbor Day in December. And uh, our executive director and a couple of our board members took on lighting it every weekend from Sunday night to Monday morning as a thank you to caregivers for all of their help during COVID. And it, the beacon became a beacon, <laughs> a, a, beacon, a beacon of hope. And uh, we've gotten so much attention, so much, so many thanks from people about, I looked up at Mount Diablo and, and I know you guys go, it, it, this is, this means going up at sunset on a Sunday and then going up at sunrise the next day to turn on and turn off this beacon. And uh, our executive director did all, we did it for 52 weeks. I think it was 52 weeks. And our executive director did all but one of those. Going up to turn off the beacon. We're a part of the tapestry of our community and we work in lots of different ways and people love the place that we're working on. That's great. Yeah, I think that's that's such an emotional uh, story and explanation. I mean, I imagine that walk up and that walk down was was very reflective for the executive director every single time. And as you're thinking about it's a drive up and a drive down. Mm -hmm. There's a road that goes to the top of the mountain, but uh, it's weather and 14 miles up of a winding mountain road. And yeah. You can't really autopilot that. You're 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 uh, you're paying attention the whole time, and and also the significance of what it means for people able to see it in different parts of the bay is really really powerful. Um, I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, a couple other questions I'd I'd love to ask you. Um, how did you get into this work? I mean, what's your origin with this? I think you said you grew up in North Carolina. Is that right? So you grew up on the other coast. I did, but I was an army brat, so we lived in a variety okay. of places. We lived the longest in North Carolina where I was born, at Fort Bragg. But I was the kid who collects frogs and snakes, and my parents gave me the garage when I was eight to get the animals out of the house. And uh, uh, and there was never any question that it was going to be something about wildlife and nature. And my parents recognized it early, even though I was like a space alien dropped into a, a Southern family and bought me books. And when I started getting jobs, I joined organizations and more books. I knew at an early age I was coming to California because the people I was interested in working with were here. And a lot of the organizations, the Bay Area was where John Muir lived, who helped start the Sierra Club. And the, a lot of organizations are here. It's cutting edge in lots of ways, although not all. If you want to see an inspiring event, go online and find one of the Goldman Prize award ceremonies. It's the equivalent of the Nobel Prize 
in, for conservation. And there are six prizes given out for each of the continents except uh, Antarctica. And they do such a great job, the Goldman Fund, one of the Levi Strauss fortunes, doing video and everything about the work of these people, not just in relatively easy places like this, but in places where you may lose your life doing environmental work <clears throat> in South America and Russia and Mongolia and China. That's inspiring. <laughs> but I always knew I was coming to the Bay Area and uh, my parents had moved back to where they were born in Mississippi when I was in college for a few years. And I remember being there in between my first year in college and coming out here and thinking to myself of there are probably a lot fewer environmentalists in Mississippi or the South than there are in California. Am I taking the easy way out by uh, moving west? It was my path from a long time back. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a that's a that's a great winding um, winding road that led you there. Um, one last question um, I'd, I'd love to ask you, because I imagine you your your work and your office, so to speak, is very different than most people's. As you mentioned, you're doing things like the bio blitz. You're out in the world. You're sampling soil and water levels and you know putting falcons back into ecosystems. Um, how do you stay healthy and change? It's, it's clearly a, a very unique uh, role you play. But uh, as you mentioned, you also have about 100 projects going on at one given time. So I would just love to hear from you how you stay healthy and change. You mean, what are my coping strategies? <laughs> That's say, another way to say it. Why don't you define for, for me uh, what you mean by healthy and change and for your audience? Sure. Yeah, so for me, I think it's a balance of both the mental and the physical and the spiritual. So, um, you know, I would ask, how do you prevent your mind from kind of racing? Um, you mentioned you have 100 projects going at once. You're obviously doing complex work. You're talking to people of different levels of power. I imagine your mind is always going. You're also an avid reader. You know, your mind's always going. So that's the one piece. And then physically, um, how do you keep yourself uh, healthy so that you can do all this work, right? Interact with the, the land, do the hikes, do the, the work that is very laborious. And then I imagine there's a spiritual element to this as well, which is when you see the land thriving and coming back, going back to the example you made in the beginning, you saw a new plant species coming into that's kind of i imagine a very spiritual experience so i kind of said it in those three realms one of my favorite quotes is i believe in god but i spell it nature it's, which is attributed to frank lloyd right but at its simplest for me nature is the cure and as long as i spend a lot of time in nature everything else takes care of itself but a lot of things have changed over the years, too. There was a time when I was, you know, intense and a workaholic, and I'm no less intense now. But I've pretty much learned to give myself a break on just about everything. And I've actually been, I've told people my major philosophical change for the past year, whether it was for employees or elected officials or anyone, was give everybody a break for everything. Every, everybody's going through some incredible changes, lots of things we would have no idea about, financial, emotional, medical, and don't even ask. You don't even have to know. You just have to choose a philosophy 
Uh, I'm going to give everybody a pass on everything, and we're all going to keep making steps forward. But there's very little in life that's so critical that we have to work at an insane pace to, to carry it out. And if someone's convincing you that you do, <laughs> you know, question that. So in the earlier years, when I was more intense and working way more hours, I would constantly feel guilt about the things that weren't getting done or done fast enough. And it's an insolvable problem, insoluble problem, because I load so many things onto the list constantly that, that that's inevitable. And again, I give myself a break on just about anything and I just keep making steps forward on the list and don't let it stress me out. So one of the ways I've described my philosophy of how I work and how I get through life is I'm a strategic thinker and I work on a lot of big visionary projects and things like that, but they all just break down into the next step and the next step and the next step. And so I describe myself as someone who's pretty good at surfing. I'm really good at staying on the top of the waves and not much drags me down anymore. I could have gotten a bad piece of news from our attorneys about this development lawsuit right before this conversation. And I would have handled it just with a plum. Ten years ago, I would have stressed out about the money and the outcome, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I know that we're going to lose some small battles, but we tend to win the war. And uh, so I'm in a lucky position where we get a lot done and have a lot of great accomplishments. And it's it's, it's that classic cliche: don't sweat the little stuff. <laughs> and it's all little stuff. And even the big things, any problem is broken down into smaller pieces. So I, I, uh, I try to stay on top of the, the surface of the water rather than getting dragged under. And we're not machines. If you expect yourself to work at a constant pace every day forever because you are really committed to steampunk in the industrial age, more power to you, but I follow organic models and seasonal models, and I'm, 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 my worldview is more, more affected by biology than it's affected by mechanism, <laughs> and, and energy waxes and wanes, and, and it's the same thing whether it's my professional life or my personal life. I never expect to be in peak physical shape all the time. I'm, I, I do a lot of cardio. I'm a weightlifter. I hike all the time. And I ride my bike a fair bit. And I'm a big Scotch background guy who has too much weight. And I don't care. <laughs> I have goals to work out frequently and to do cardio a lot. And I know that I'm going to gear up on hiking as it gets cooler and gear down as it gets really hot. So we have perfect weather in the Bay Area much of the year, <laughs> which really works for my lifestyle. But if ever I'm feeling down, exercise and going outside, especially 
not just outside. Uh, I know that a walk around my block with my dog makes me feel better and them too. But for me and for most people don't reach this threshold, they don't really understand it. And it works even better in nature because there are fewer distractions. But if you go take a walk into an open space, any open space, at the 45-minute point, things are going to shift. All the things you brought with you and the distractions and the work and the fights with your partner, those are going to fall away. And at about 45 minutes, so I really am a, a, a proponent of at least taking hour-long walks. Right at the 45 minute point, your breathing is going to change. You're going to stop thinking about all those distractions and you're going to start to see what's around you. <laughs> you're going to start to appreciate the open space and the wildlife and the weather and the sunset and everything. And it's going to make your whole day and your whole week better. And anytime you're feeling down, do that. Take an hour walk. We're not meant to not exercise 24 hours a day. Nature is the cure and exercise is the tool. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that perspective. And you're right. I mean, there's that aspect of if you let if you let that open space be a canvas for you, it's amazing how many problems you can actually solve or the problems fall away, right? Like the things that you thought were really the problems. So you get that perspective. Seth, thank you for this time. This was a really great conversation. It flew by. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. I would just say one thing, which is there are so many distractions going on constantly that getting out by yourself or with others by yourself sometimes where you're not being distracted, when you're out long enough that the distractions fall away, it puts everything in perspective. And you really find out that I was unreasonable in this fight or that thing really didn't matter. <laughs> or here's the next two things I can do about that challenge I have facing me. Or here's how I'm going to organize my day tomorrow so I'm ahead of the game. That, that, that time spent by yourself, especially outside, it's gold. And uh, the one thing, I, the one sort of tool I'll give people out there if you don't have it is even doing meetings like I did this morning and this coming Monday, outside walking meetings, here's the tool. Pick a trail. You're going to go out. Say you've got an hour with that person. You're going to go out for half an hour talking about whatever. And on the half hour on the way back, you'll talk about your objectives. And that will be a more productive meeting than you usually have. You'll connect with the person. The bullshit will fall away. And you'll be able to talk in a straightforward fashion about your objectives in the second half hour. And it's if I were doing a book about corporate um, strategies, walking meetings is one of my big ones. Thank you. I appreciate the time and the wisdom. It's a tremendous amount of wisdom. Hey, it was a pleasure, Bill. Thank you.